Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, January 26, 2018. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have a giant crew today. Uh, Gabby, Elliot, Doug, <laughs> Tiffany, and Erica, and our good friend Pierre. Welcome, everybody. Hello. 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 Awesome. <laughs> so we have a, uh, a very important and... Uh, you know, potentially controversial, although not between us, but uh, in general, topic uh, today, toxic feminism and the war on men. Uh, so this uh, should prove to be a very interesting topic. I know and can freely admit that I have some programs that are going to surface here, so we'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure all, all men and women do. Um, mm-hmm. But Pierre has written a very uh, in-depth and uh, insightful article uh, five feminist lies that we take for granted on this topic. So that's why we have him on today to talk about this. And I guess just to jump right in, um, Pierre, I get, would you mind uh, introducing yourself and then just talk about what what brought you to the point of saying I'm going to write this article? <clears throat> it's been a, a journey that started in uh, 2014, I think, during an innocuous discussion with my grandma. At the time, she was uh, 100 years old, oh. and um, and we are talking about uh, everything. And uh, we started addressing the topic of the Eurovision singing contest mm. and the winner. Uh, and this year it was Conchita Wurz. I don't know if you remember this singer. Um, <clears throat> anyway, my grandma wanted to know more about Conchita Wurz. And uh, I realized I couldn't convey the fact that he was a biological man dressing like a woman and wearing a beard. And, uh, you know, there there was such a chasm, and I started to think, but uh, how much uh, did the world change in uh, not so many decades to the point that uh, my grandma and me, or my grandma cannot understand such thing that seemed quite, uh, maybe not normal, but quite understandable for our generation. So that's when I started to to explore the two topics that are very related homosexualism and feminism very related because um, the modus operandi is the same you have a minority of pathological individuals that label a, a group as uh, victims yeah? a minority as victims and they're going to use this victimizing in order to gain power mm-hmm. and uh, it's a process you can see in, uh, in history that's uh, interesting actually it's very similar to the French Revolution mm. where you have the revolutionaries claiming to serve the good of the oppressed farmers or the Bolshevik who claim to serve the goods of the um, proletariat, or even uh, Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. where you have the Nazis who claim to serve the good of German people, the Aryans. Mm-hmm. And uh, systematically, you have the people, the alleged victims, who end up in a situation worse after the quote-unquote revolution than before. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you see a very a lot of similarities today in the feminist and in the homosexualist uh, movements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I, that, I mean, you start the article off with referencing that uh, that idea <clears throat> that feminism did not invent anything by using the victimization of a population to further its political agenda, um, and I think that's a connection a lot of people could benefit from making. I wonder uh, if we can just let's just go through the uh, the points that you make. I'm sorry, go ahead, Jonathan. 
<coughs> on this topic about the creation of the feminist ideas uh, not having happened in a, in a vacuum, you can mm. see that uh, feminism is a copy of paste of Marxism, mm -hmm. where the proletariat, i.e. the victimized minority, is replaced by women. Mm -hmm. And uh, the corollary to this uh, assertion is that uh, males are the oppressor today in the eyes of feminist propaganda, the same way the nobility, the Tsar, were the oppressors in, uh, in Russia or in, uh, in, in Marxism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah and, that's uh, very interesting. Even in Nazism, I mean, it was the, the same kind of thing, like the Jews were the oppressors or the yes. uh, the communists. <clears throat> and, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like there's always uh, this this uh, oppressive force that's kind of implied or, well, actually not even implied, like outright stated. Yes. Yeah. Well, and we see that run amok now, right? I mean, you can uh, claim oppression for pretty much anything you want if you're offended. I mean, yes, there's, there's a interesting shift um, that is actually part of the revolutionary process, this hysteriasization of the masses, where you have a, a shift from uh, debates based on evidence, mm. material facts, objective truth, mm -hmm. uh, due processes. You know, that's how the law works, for example. And you have a shift, semantic shift, political shift towards uh, the individual, towards the feelings, towards perception. Uh, to our subjective emotions. Yeah. Well, I mean, we definitely see that in the the Me Too thing, that uh, due process is just, it's not there. It's not a thing anymore. It's just kind of like an accuser says something and they are um, instantly believed. And it's spread that they should be believed, that they, <clears throat> there's no, you know, if, you, if you're worth your salt as a human being, you should believe this person is making the accusation. When that there's that really doesn't follow. There's no reason to believe this person. We don't know them. Uh, yes, um, <clears throat> it goes end in end with a very deep belief that most of us hold that um, um, women cannot lie mm. because they are victims. But you see, that's a securely reasoning. Mm. Are they really victim? Because if they're not victim, then maybe they can lie. Mm. You know, it's only because of these victim status that we assume that they cannot lie. Which is, of course, uh, statistics show that. Uh, uh, at least 50% of the divorce case, custody battles, uh, they are lies. Mm. And, and actually, when you were talking about the, the law, the, this Me Too movement, you see that one of the fundamental tenets of the law is presumption of innocence. Innocent until proven guilty yeah. has been flipped on his head. And today is guilty until proven innocent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in between, anyway, your career, your family, uh, your belongings, your wealth, everything will be destroyed and seized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there's a large portion of the cases of rape um, accusations, which I can't remember the exact statistics, but it was shockingly high, the amount of accusations which turned out to be false. Mm -hmm. But then the people who were being accused of rape, um, their life was practically destroyed. <laughs> For yeah. you know, I mean, people can lose their jobs, they can lose their entire career they can lose their family based on um on what is nothing more than 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 a lie and the problem cool. is 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 that there's no it's not innocent until proven guilty it's guilty until proven innocent it seems it's just as mm. you said it's been flipped upon its head yeah you're right and um you see that uh, a lot of forces are contributing are pushing uh 
people, mostly female, but it happens to, to male too, uh, mostly female, to uh, file false accusations because um, today well, there's a lot of financial incentives. There's been also a, a widening of the legal definitions of rape that can today include almost anything, mm. like a, a woman having a one-night stand with a man, then the day after she just didn't get what she wanted or she regrets or she realized she was drunk and uh, uh, she didn't really want to do it, it's rape. Yeah. You see, so um, <clears throat> there's, a, there's also a, an army of lawyers, judges who make money on those kind of business businesses. You also have a protection of the accuser that remains anonymous while the accused is uh, publicly bashed in the media and, uh, and other places. <clears throat> and you also have a almost no accountability. Uh, there is a case um, of false rape accusation that destroyed the life of the accused, the man, and the woman who filed those false allegations was fined to $250. Mm. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, if, you are, if you're a woman and uh, you start to, to enter the system and believe uh, everything that is said to you, you, there's, you have strong incentives to file uh, such uh, false accusations. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, and it's a tricky ground, uh, too, because... It, oh, I'm sorry, Tiff, go ahead. A lot of the accusations that are coming out, especially within the Me Too movement, they're all directed at men who are in positions of power, who are wealthy, who have a lot to lose. Mm-hmm. You don't see any of these Me Too accusations coming out against the janitor at somebody's school, for yeah. instance. <laughs> sure. And yeah, well, I've, yeah, well that, to make that's it very interesting. <clears throat> That's interesting what you say because, uh, <clears throat> sorry, um, <clears throat> statistics show that actually, um, basically the the divorce, the divorce, the no fault divorce, the the widespread, the widened definition of uh, any kind of sexual assault, sexual abuse, um, as a result, as a result, removed husbands from the family. And that's one of the reasons why today we have such a high prevalence of single mom, mother families. And uh, statistics shows actually that the safest place for a kid is a family with the father and the mother. Mm-hmm. Because the biological, biological father is, in most cases, the protector. Once you remove the father, statistics concerning child abuse go through the roof. Child abuse by the biological mother and by the stepfather. Mm-hmm. And uh, it gets even worse when you remove the kid, when a state, a welfare state that basically replaces the father. There's no more father, but there is daycare. Mm. There is uh, financial support. There are nurses and there are teachers and uh, all the welfare state takes the kid, sometimes literally in, a, in daycare or in a, a juvenile uh, homes. And in those places, the likelihood for the kids to be abused, not abused by other kids, eh? abused by the, the employees is 80% high, 80 times, eight zero Whoa. times wow. higher to be abused for a kid in such a, a house, collective houses, than in a, in his home with his father and his mother. Hmm. So the, the re- eight, eight zero, eighty yeah. wow. eighty times higher. It's a, wow. so a tiff remark about uh, the, the, the accusation not being directed at, at the teacher. The welfare state is interesting because that's where most abuse, that's where the child are, more, are the most endangered. And that's 
the cases that are the least mediatized. Yeah. Jeez. <clears throat> yeah, we see this going on a lot. I mean, uh, where I live is a rural area, and you would expect rural conservative, which it is. Uh, but we also have a lot, a lot, a lot of single mothers. Uh, and I think, you know, part of that is due to the culture. Part of it is due to the availability of welfare uh, from the state. Again, a very sensitive area to talk about, but that is part of the cause. Um, but you see that a lot, and uh, it's uh, it's unfortunate in my mind, not because I think those women are not able to handle it necessarily, but because the uh, the environment that's most beneficial for that family is not there, right? And you can see how it extends itself out. And then when you introduce welfare and um, you know becoming, uh, I don't know how to say this, becoming sort of mentally comfortable with a lower standard of living, to you, it in, inculcates into you the sense that you that that's just where you are and you can't mm. get anywhere else. Um, people become comfortable with that. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it rolls into a lot of other areas of life, I think. Uh, absolutely. Actually, the, the single mother household that is so much praised by the media and the feminists as a ultimate symbol of woman emancipation is highly destructive. And here statistics are crystal clear. Again, the likelihood for the kid to embrace criminality, drug, to be jobless, to have disease, mental disease, is determined, is way higher when the kid grows in a single mother household. Mm. So, um, yeah, and that's not rocket science. A, a kid needs a father and a mother and uh, good ones. This is something that feminists have pushed against, at least uh, since the 60s. But uh, they want to, they see that the traditional nuclear family where the father goes out to work and the mom stays home and takes care of the house and takes care of the kids. They see they saw that as something that was oppressive for women, something that they needed to break free from and being tied into the house and doing all the chores and taking care of the kids was a detriment to women. So mm. one of the ways that they tried to get rid of that oppressive force is to uh, advocate for welfare. But when a woman signs up for welfare is kind of, uh, she's encouraged to stay single because if she has a husband, mm -hmm. she loses benefits. Uh, feminists also push for widespread daycare so there is someone else to take care of the child and so uh, the child does not oppress the mother by having to be raised by her <laughs> yeah and uh, you're right you're right and uh, but interestingly despite the claims uh, spread by the feminist that uh, destruction of the family was the way for the emancipation for the woman today 2018 women have never been this unhappy historically Mm. Surveys uh, are very clear this, uh, in this domain as well. And uh, it suggests that uh, not seeing your kids, not having a husband, not having a family, spending your time at the, in a factory or uh, the job might not be, it might be ideal in the twisted mind of feminists, but obviously that's not what the women were looking for. Feminists who don't speak in the name of women. Yeah, yeah, the, the support yeah. rate for feminism is eight percent in the UK. It's, it dropped to eighteen percent in uh, in the US. So uh, hmm. again, in those revolutionary movements, 
the pathological elite has nothing to do with the minority they claim to defend. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I think that's, uh, you know, it, it's very easy to see, uh, the people in the media and, uh, who are kind of grandstanding on these issues as, as representing the people who they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jordan Peterson has gotten into this with, uh, with the whole trans movement that a lot of these SJW kind of protesters don't really speak for the trans community. And a lot of trans people have actually come out and said, I don't, I don't agree with these people who are kind of yeah. grandstanding on these issues. And I think the same, same thing can be said for, for feminism as well. They don't speak for all women. Yeah, they certainly they, don't. I know a lot of single mothers. Probably most of the mothers that I do know are single mothers. And mm-hmm. it is very rough and it's very difficult. And talking to them, they would love to be able to stay home with their kids and have a husband that went out to work so they can focus all their energy on their kids. So these feminists are not speaking for the average working class woman, that's for sure. Mm. Um, I just wanted to provide some some quotes um, of what some of these feminists have, have said, just so it can give some insight into what kind of people that we're actually talking about here. Um, one of them called Linda Gordon, she's a well-known feminist icon, apparently said, the nuclear family must be destroyed. What, whatever its ultimate meaning, the breakup of families now is an objectively revolutionary process. Um, another one said, we can't destroy the inequities between men and women until we destroy marriage. Um, so, so these are these are pretty hardcore feminists with with an agenda <laughs> that goes seemingly goes beyond um, liberating women from oppression. It's almost like there's a there's a vendetta <laughs> that's involved yeah. here. <laughs> well, I thought pretty... about the. Uh... Oh, I'm sorry, Gabby. Go ahead. I was just gonna say they sound pretty pathological. You know, they just go against real core values, family values. You know. Who can mm-hmm. like really listen to them? You know, take them seriously. Yeah, well, yeah, Pierre, no. you mentioned the. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, you mentioned the um, uh, the percentages of people who agree with feminism going way down, and it occurs to me that that it's 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 almost an inability. Of, of people are rejecting feminism, even though they may agree with if you if, with it if you propose it in a certain way. What I mean by that is, I think everybody can agree. I think that. Uh, part of the equation is equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome. Equality Mm -hmm. of outcome means everybody gets the same thing no matter what they do, which is unfair, right? But equality of opportunity means everybody gets the same chance and then they can do what they are able to. And I think that that personally is more just. So we could also, we could, we could agree that men and women should have equality of opportunity. Um, But Mm -hmm. saying that is so intimately tied with the idea of feminism that it's hard to say that without saying, you know, I'm a feminist or I disagree with the feminist movement, but I think this. And so it, it's almost like they're, they're also destroying the nuance of the discussion. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, before addressing this point uh, concerning Elliot um, quote uh, coming from Gordon, the, one of the feminist fa- feminism founders. Or, why? is the destruction of the family the aim. Because when you think about it, a woman can very well have a child and raise his child without a father, Mm. without a man. So what is the family? The family enacts the integration of the father inside the nucleus. 
So if you destroy the family, what do you do? In fact, you remove the father, you expel the father from the family nucleus. And uh, that's the first step. And the second step, you replace the father with the welfare state. Mm-hmm. And the welfare state will provide to the kid an education in line with the feminist principles. Mm. So today we're preparing a generation that has been brainwashed from uh, the cradle into the feminist, homosexualist, LGBT, uh, sexual liberty and this uh, totalitarian vision of the world. You see where you you enforce, where you control. Totalitarian because one of the key points on a legal level, the family was the only place where the public sphere didn't enter the private sphere. Mm. In your house, you could give the education you wanted to your kids. Mm. You could raise him according to your own values, traditional values, if uh, if it was so. Sure. And that has been removed. The last sphere of private life, that is freedom, has been removed from society in the name of equality. And now about the, about feminism prevalence, I mean, the level of support of feminism, true, it's very low, according to surveys, but we have to keep in mind that although most people don't identify as feminists, most people have uh, integrated the feminist narrative. Mm. Yeah. A, a lot of people, most people do not identify as feminists, but most of those people probably believe that uh, there's a higher prevalence uh, of domestic violence, rape, um, or child abuse perpetrated by men than perpetrated by women. Yeah, maybe this is a good point point to actually get into your article. I mean, because that kind of directly relates, like the five feminist lies that we take for granted. Um, So should we take them one at a time? So yeah, I mean, you you already kind of brought it up here. Like women are the victims of domestic violence. Yeah, and um, <clears throat> well, the article is uh, clear about it. That is, I mean, all the sources are are mentioned and surveys, non-biased surveys, because uh, Donald Dutton in his uh, 2008 uh, paper shows that uh, out of 47 studies about domestic violence, he was he found biased for women in 47 out of 47 surveys studies, and he found zero paper with a bias for men. So well, I won't go in the list of all the bias, but uh, I mean, one of the bias, I mean, one of the obvious bias is uh, in domestic violence, yeah? No, domestic violence leading to death mm. and those kind of uh, ultimate uh, cases. Um, official statistics say that 70% of the death due to battering are women. And then when, when you check, you have to go in the paper and check the methodology and the, the raw data. You discover that the death of males due to battering, uh, the, no, the, the death due to self-defense mm. are not uh, counted in the statistics. Huh. And you discover as well that the vast majority of death uh, due to self-defense in battering are committed by uh, by women. So w- when woman ki- when the wife kills the husband, it's self-defense. When the male kills the wife, it is battering. 
It is uh, domestic violence. So fortunately, there are some countries who didn't integrate this bias in the statistics, like Jamaica. In Jamaica, over the two past years, you had 80 men who died from uh, battering and uh, 30, uh, 35 women, I think. Hmm. Uh, so it's a one-to-two ratio. And now, and that's that's puzzling because males are always stronger than women, aren't they? Usually, that's not always the case. But mm. I mean, testosterone and the muscles, and uh, that's true. But males, specifically, yes, that is in general. But males, in general, again, are very unlikely to beat a woman. It is not okay to beat a woman mm. because I think it's deeply ingrained in men. <clears throat> men are biologically, genetically, evolutionary speaking, designed to provide and protect. Mm-hmm. And this assertiveness, this aggressivity that uh, the feminists point the finger at, this aggressivity is very useful because it's used in 99% of the case to protect women mm-hmm. against predator, against external threats, to defend the family. And um, um, so, well, I think I forgot what I wanted to say. <laughs> would, would you agree that that's oh. partly like evolutionary biology in the sense that you know, the, the, there is a, a, a reason uh, at the basis for why we have these stereotypes. Like uh, it, what came to mind while you were talking about is that women, you know, we, we perceive women as looking for the strong man who has his, you know, life together and can provide for himself and can provide for somebody else. That, that's attractive because of our evolutionary biology, because that's what you're <laughs> looking for to protect the unit. But then when we, when we just disband the unit, we deny the, the impulses that we have. And so we're left looking for something that we think we're not looking for. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Well, I remember what I wanted to say that, uh, so it's puzzling that uh, women commit domestic violence this much and including severe domestic violence. But while male have high testosterone, have potential of, of violence, they use this violence to protect usually. And you see the social experiment when a male, when actors, eh, a male beats a woman in the public space, you have the other males who react very violently to protect the woman. And they're going to lynch the man in the public place. Because it's not something that you do. It's very deeply wired in men. Mm. Women women don't have the same wiring. Um, and women are more likely than men, statistically, to use weapons mm. against the, the spouse. Uh, hence the this number of deaths due to bat buttering committed uh, perpetrated by women. Mm. And now, as you said, Jonathan, they asked, I think, and I'm writing a second article uh, titled uh, Why Do We B- Believe the Feminist Lies? And I entered, um, I developed more this point about the, uh, the biology. And I uh, intimately believe that males, as I said, are wired from because of evolutionary pressures to provide and protect while women are designed to care and to nurture. Now, that's something that you see in the animal kingdom. 85% of the birds have a parental role assignment following this distribution. The male, uh, the daddy bird, mm. provides and protects. He builds a nest, he brings back food to the nest, and he protects from uh, predators. And the mummy bird, what does she do? She stays in the nest, she raises the kids, and she nurtures them. And it's not, those roles are not bad. One role is not better than the other one. Unlike what the feminists want to, to tell us. 
but very importantly, they are complementary and synergetic. Mm. When you have those yeah. two skills, those two sets of talent together, but you have a growth of the species, which is uh, the, the life force, the drive of the life force, and uh, that's very strong, and that's the instinct, that's the genetics, and today, because of the postmodernist and the enlightenment and all the factors we can go into, today we have this belief that human beings are so different from animals. They're mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. We maintain the veneer of civil. Uh, civilized behavior because we are in very easy situation and an abundance of resources, sure. uh, material resources and water and food. Just remove that, create a situation of scarcity and you will see how quickly this veneer will disappear and you will quickly <laughs> yeah. realize how important assertiveness, potential for aggression, the right aggression to protect is essential mm. yeah. if you want to survive. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, people could object that, yeah, okay, birds are not human beings. They're not. There's a lot in common, but they're not, okay? When kids, you, you have those studies where very young kids, like six months, one year old, you you give them toys or you show them toys. Girls choose dolls. Mm-hmm. And when you look at them playing with dolls, they nurture them. They take care of them. They, they do what they, they're feeding them. They dress them up. They put makeup on them. They, they, they dress their, their hair. And boys... They choose guns and they shoot with it. Mm-hmm. They aggress, they protect, they defend. And uh, if you give a, a doll to the boy, the boy uses the doll as a gun. If he turns it's a gun, he's shooting <laughs> with it. <laughs> they are sure. six, they are six months old. That's all social construct sure. that has nothing yeah. to do with biology whatsoever. Yeah, but the, one one year old, six months old. Where is the social construct mm-hmm. in birds? Where is the social construct in chimps? Chimpanzees that are very, very, very close to human beings. Chimpanzee boy, uh, chimpanzee babies, male babies. They do the same. Mm. They choose the the, the stick. Mm. Actually, it was not going to stick. And the the chimpanzee baby uh, female, she chose the doll, and mm. she not her the doll. So the birds, yeah. the, and there's also some historical perspective. This parental role assignment, very complementary again. We've witnessed it for centuries, if not millennia. It brought us to, uh, I mean, all this progress, all this development of the successes, despite uh, a lot of failure, but all this success. And from an evolutionary perspective, the predominant role human beings reach on this planet was attained through this kind of organization. So mm-hmm. it's probably not this bad. Yeah. <laughs> no. It, yeah. it occurs to me that there's uh, two of the, the kind of blockers around this are the black and white thinking and, and value judgments. So, we're you know, it, like we're all adults here, we can have this discussion and say that uh, w- females, women are uh, programmed to be nurturing and men are programmed to provide for and be aggressive, you know, in certain contexts and things like that. And I think a lot of people take a statement like that as, as a blanket statement, even though it's not intended that way. Like people who receive that information have a hard time distinguishing the subtleties around it. And then they assign value judgments to these things where the ability so that, you know, a, a saying that a man should have the position of a father is bad instead of saying that that can complement the mother. And there's a, there's, you need the ability to, to split those values and see how they are synergistic. But because we okay. lack, or in general, people are lacking that ability to think 
in nuanced terms, uh, that value judgment doesn't get appropriately distributed and it's put on one side. So that side is better. And the other side is, is, you know, a hundred percent bad. Um, and it's, uh, it's making it very hard to talk about, you know, in the day to day. Well, yeah, just look at the, uh, the rise of the term toxic masculinity. I mean, you see it everywhere. This idea that, that male traits are actually toxic, you know, it's, it, it's, it really does make a discussion very difficult. Well, yeah, as an example, I mean, like the, uh, the domestic violence statistics, uh, as playing devil's advocate, sort of as a lay person, uh, it, it immediately it would be like, no, you know, of course men abuse women more than women abuse men. I mean, that seems intuitively like it would be the case. Um, but when you really look at it, it's, it's, yeah. Or is it a social construct? <laughs> or programmatically, right. Yeah. And I think that... There are whole campaigns yeah. about domestic violence, and at least I can support the statistics from my experience. I mean, I worked in the emergency room, and I never saw a case of domestic violence against women. I did saw several cases of hmm. domestic violence against men, you know. It was like, mm-hmm. women just go completely hysterical, and they just have, like, green light, you know. They can get away mm. with it. It's in- interesting you mentioned that because... Um, while writing this article, I, I discovered a trend that is a, a bit worrying that, that uh, while the prevalence of violence and rape and um, sex, um, child abuse is roughly the same between male and female, although it's higher amongst female, uh, a bit higher. Um, in the young generation, in the papers that were conducted in co- amongst colleagues, college population, you see a, an increase in gap, the gap between male and female. That is, the young gen- in the young generation, there's a, even a higher prevalence of violence perpetrated by women. Hmm. And uh, I'm wondering if, it's, if it's we, the fruits of feminism are not starting to ripe, you know? Hmm. When you keep repeating that uh, male are toxic, male are aggressor, male are the oppressor, male are crap, male deserve to die, male deserve to be castrated endlessly, it probably has uh, an effect on male, mm-hmm. self-confidence, on a uh, factors similar to that, and on women as well, you know? Mm. So maybe that's why we see this uh, increase in violence perpetrated in, uh, by young women. Mm. Yeah. I did notice that when we were uh, researching for our uh, corporal punishment show, and some researchers wanted to find out if experiencing spanking as a child led to more domestic violence, and they conducted a study of college kids and a surprising thing that they came across was that it was way more females in college who perpetrated domestic violence against their partners or boyfriends mm. than it was men perpetrating uh, domestic violence. Yeah. I mean, so I'm, I'm personally familiar with, the, yeah, the women's studies and the whole uh, toxic masculinity things that are going around in colleges that is not surprising at all that women mm. would, women in college especially would hit their boyfriends more yeah, yeah. <clears throat> in college you have a, a combination of at least two factors uh, mm-hmm. two causal factors a there is the age and of people today in college who have been uh, exposed since at birth to uh, mm-hmm. intense uh, feminist propaganda and you have a specific population. I mean, to go to college, you need some money, and, and uh, there's a social class factor there. And uh, uh, 
a lot of leftist leaning population um, that were more um, exposed to the feminist uh, ideology. So I'm not surprised that this population uh, shows a higher rate of uh, domestic violence. Yeah. Well, that, that leads into, I think, an interesting topic. If you guys don't mind, I want to address for a few minutes uh, two types of, of men. Not that there are two types, but two of the types sort of, of, of men in regards to, to feminism. And I have a lot of uh, personal encounters with this kind of situations, but I see one where men are uh, sort of uh, beaten down by the rhetoric uh, to the point where they uh, become uh, subservient and will give into even unto like illogical demands or even uh, damaging demands by women because um, one, that's what they think they should do, but also because they, they are uh, uh, programmed by fear into doing that. Uh, so that's kind of like one type and then another one that comes to mind is men who have not necessarily changed their approach, um, but are taking advantage of the feminist rhetoric. Uh, pardon my French here to get late. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So yes, yes, all women are queens. Come home with me. You know. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I, I'm curious: is the the former, uh, the men who are kind of beaten down? I find very interesting. The other guys, that's that's men. To me, that's like kind of expected. That's that there's a portion of men who will take advantage of a situation for sex. You know, that there's a percentage of that. But uh, I'm I'm interested in the men who are beaten down because it seems to me that the feminist movement has eradicated the men that they claim to be looking for. And I, I don't know if you know what I mean. And, uh, uh, yeah. Well, I'm gonna. Uh... We were talking about that uh, this morning at, uh, in the, at the, around the kitchen table. Mm. And uh, there are cases in Sweden and Germany of um, feminist women who have uh, castrated the, the men at home, right? Mm. You know, mostly uh, servant, uh, how they call them? Cocks. Yeah. In Germany and Sweden, they are they're more feminist than the feminists. Because, mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, some of the most virulent feminists are male. So they've embraced the this um this lie you know we're gonna uh, i would like to develop the the reason why why they embraced it uh in any case they embraced it so they have cocks at home and uh and the family uh, feminist uh, female uh, mm, do not like those kind of men mm. they uh they have contempt for those guys and uh and sexually it's certainly not the kind of men they're looking for. So you have a increase in the frequency of this kind of events where you have a German woman going into uh, migrant camps in Germany mm. and having sex with a young black man mm. chasing the black mamba. <laughs> so you see, and the, the sexual, but the sex is at the center of the, the feminist ideology, sexuality and uh, the fantasies and the reality. So <clears throat> the feminists fantasize the world of oppressing men that they were afraid of. Mm. So they castrated the man, the oppressors, and uh, they end up going to the the man with a big penises, the black man, which mm. symbolically is a powerful man. Mm. So you see the um, the ambivalence between reality and uh, and the fantasies, mm. between uh, what is uh, rejected officially in the discourse, mm-hmm. in the intellectual sphere, that is 
rejecting the domination, the oppression, the powerful male. Mm. And uh, on a sexual level, it's probably more emotional more than sexual, going toward the, the powerful male. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like they're getting exactly what they want and then discovering it's not what they want and having to... I think there's a lot of repression and uh, fantasies. Mm. Um, and uh, the repression occurs on the, the level of the official discourse. And the, fant- and the fantasy uh, shows the true drive but in a caricatural, caricatural way, you know, because the, the migrant or the, you have the sexual tourism <coughs> in uh, some African countries mm-hmm. where you have busloads of Swedish women or German women who goes over there, you can see them walking on the beach with a, with young black men, mm-hmm. you know. Because mm. those men are caricature of, uh, of the, of power, it's caricatural because it's, uh, it's limited to the size of the penis, <laughs> you know. So, uh, which is a very ironic when you know that one of the main arguments of feminism is the objectification of women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, so those men are, <laughs> Obviously, similarly objectified. Mm. Yeah, totally. That reduces well, the a, size of the penis. It, it's it's a role reversal for sure. I mean, it's it, you know, it, it's quote unquote our turn now. Mm. You know, I, I think but I, I, to address um, the, but, the point about. But I don't think oh, it, it was. Uh, I'm not sure it was ever the violent sure. world of men oppressing women. Yeah, uh, I think it's long gone, and I'm not sure it ever existed in a dramatic ways been described by uh, feminist uh, revisionists. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think that's I mean, true. The courteous love was not created in 20th century. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, to talk about how what we were talking about the 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 male feminists, like you might say, radical male feminists or illogical male feminists. Um, and that defeating the purpose of what the feminists are looking for. If I may bear my belly and have tell my own story just real, real briefly, a uh, number, just like almost 20 years ago, I was in a relationship uh, with a woman who was very nice. Um, but I was at the time in that like male feminist camp, like anything that a woman wants, you know, or in, in complete and total like service and subservience, no will of my own. And as you might imagine, the relationship went sour. And it took me years to realize that the reason it went sour was because I had no uh, agency, you know. And so I, uh, and, uh, for very obvious reasons, became unattractive because I had, no, you know, no direction, no motivation or purpose. So, yeah, you know, women might think that they want a man to serve them. But when you get that, you get a robot. You don't get an actual man. Mm. Yeah, and, uh, so and you get a point. slave because someone yeah. who is subservient uh, has only a yes available. There is no no. Um, right. there's, no so there's no assertiveness. Yeah. Not only there's no de- development, but there is no um, there is no freedom. There is no choice. The man is a slave of his uh, be nice program. Mm-hmm. So he's not being uh, really serving or helping from a, due to conscious choice or protecting. Is on this blinding follow, uh, follow uh, blindly following his uh, subservience, mm. saying yes to everything. Yeah. So, but, but saying yes to everything is saying yes to nothing, because mm. this yes has no more value. Yeah, 
Could it be? I want to propose a, a, an idea, and I, you guys tell me if this is misguided, but it could be kind of like the, a case of the snake eating its own tail in the sense that feminism is creating, let's say for lack of a better phrase, weak men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, weak men are then creating more feminists because, you know, it, it's it's like it's collapse or it's um, I guess it's feeding itself in a way. Um, I have a picture in my mind, but it's it's hard to elucidate. Uh, I guess in in the sense that uh, if if men could kind of get their shit together, I guess uh, that we might be able to balance it out a little bit more. But because men are trying to meet feminism halfway, either through fear or through their own selfish motivation, it's perpetuating the situation. It's going on and on and on. Yes, there's a a downward spiral and. One item that might have started this spiral is uh, is as follow. It's not for me. It's for my, a guy who wrote this book, Male Sexuality, and uh, it's a doctor in psychology who spent 20 years interviewing uh, males who had uh, um, psychological issues or suffering. And again and again, he noticed the same pattern. This guilt of male, or the, at least remorses, at best remorses, at worst guilt felt by males relative to females. And he tried to explain it in those terms. And he says that boys, unlike girls, when they become adults, they have A, to severe the bond with the mother. Girls do that as well to some extent. But in addition, they have to develop their masculinity. Because in childhood, boys grew under the, the influence and the protection of their mother. That's their reference. So when puberty comes, they develop their masculinity and they take distance from the mother, the femininity. Then they easily equate masculinity with uh, taking distance from the mother, which is a painful process often for the boy and for the mother. So developing your, asserting developing your masculinity becomes equated with making mom suffer. And since the mother is a old woman, you know, it's a, by generalization, it's a old woman. And the boys now grown as an adult, thinks that masculinity hurts women. Mm-hmm. And he feels guilty about that. At least he, he has remorses for having made his mother suffer by leaving her and developing his masculinity. Otherwise, he feels guilt. And I think it's on this core, unconscious but very powerful emotional core that you find in a lot of males, this core of guilt and remorses that the feminists have created their old paradigm. And that's what manage, what help the feminist lies to take hold of the male psyche. Because all those accusations, males are rapists, males are sexual, uh, are child uh, abusers. Males are murderers. Males are oppressors. I mean, these are very nasty accusations. Mm-hmm. And at best, males say nothing. <clears throat> at worst, they embrace those lies. And they beat themselves in a masochistic uh, reaction. So why, when you accuse, when you accuse, if you say nothing, silence is consent. Mm-hmm. It means to some extent you resonate with those accusations. It means either you you think you are guilty of the accusation. 
uh, it means either you are guilty or you feel you are guilty. Mm. And I think indeed a lot of men, because of this, um, growing up into adulthood and masculinity I described previously, a lot of men harbor this guilt and therefore accept the feminist lies. Sure. Pierre, in that book that you're talking about where the psychologist is interviewing these men, are these men raised in broken homes with single mothers? Because I'm thinking if the father was in the home, he would be taking care of the mother's emotional needs. And when it was time for the boy to grow up and leave the home, he wouldn't have that guilt because mom is being taken care of, of by dad. Is that exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, alors, there are many cases, but what you say is perfectly true and is very important. A boy will enter masculinity and take distance from the mother in a healthy way. He won't equate masculinity with hurting mothers, women in general. If he has a role model, if he has a father, a good father, who shows that masculinity is not hurting women. On the contrary, true masculinity is protecting women. So being masculine is not making, it's not hurting women. That's the contrary. Um, that's the first factor. And the second factor, when there's a husband at home, you're very less likely to have a devouring mother. Today, in a single mother households, no father, you have the boy who will play the role of the, of the father to some extent. And the separation, when the boy becomes teenager or adult, the separation for the mother will be more traumatic for the mother. Because she loses the son and she loses symbolically the the husband or the father as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so the devouring mother is uh, it will increase the feeling of guilt because it increases the feeling of uh, um, hurting the mother by becoming a male, an adult male. So yeah, that, sure. that's spot on and that, that's very interesting because if you take a historic perspective, it puts a different light on the, this objective uh, stated by Gordon, the feminist Gordon saying that our objective is to destroy the family. Mm. By destroying the family, they, trim, they created the single mother um, households that magnified the guilt felt by men on which feminists could build uh, and spread the propaganda. Mm. Yeah, well, I think that's an interesting thing that, that men can explore, too, that, that guilt uh, to realize, because it's something that I it comes to the surface quite a bit, realizing that I have that guilt programmed into me. Uh, and I, I had an encounter last year with a, a friend of mine who's a good friend, not super close, but we know each other and we're, you know, civil and everything's cool. Uh, but we were talking, having a conversation, and uh, she said all, all men are pigs or all men are sick you know it was a very like strong generalization and i remember for a very split second i was like yeah and then all of a sudden i was like hey like whoa wait a minute because i'm weren't we just having a good conversation and i'm not one of those people you know like so where is this coming from uh and yeah it was interesting for me to explore the fact that i felt that guilt and for a second i agreed i was like yeah you're right you know but uh, when you really think about it, you're like, no, that's, I'm not responsible for that. Now that's the, that's the great, like, uh, conundrum of everyone who is generalized and is actually oppressed, right? Because if somebody is, if, if, if you generalize someone and they're not, they don't fit into that generality, they're, they're offended. Like, Hey man, I'm not one of those people. 
um, you know, that, uh, is, is happening with men across the board and, and with women. And that's, I mean, we need to work this both sides into this discussion, I think, not out of fear, but just out of like looking at the entire picture that men become afraid, uh, to say certain things and that women also become afraid to say, Hey, I would, I would like to have a child. You know what I mean? Or I would like to participate in this, what you think is evil. Pierre, um, yeah. the way that you describe the, the whole process, um, the having to do with the, the feminists um, promoting the idea of, of the destruction of the nuclear family. And then you have this dynamic between the boy and the, and the mother and growing up to when, when they finally separate, there is that feeling of guilt, which then perpetuates um, and sort of um, reinforces this feminist agenda. Uh, do you think that, that these feminists, I mean, because it seems like a master plan, you know, <laughs> the way they ex explained it, it seems like it works out very well for these individuals. Um, do you think that it that there is some sort of conscious awareness of the effect that they are having on males by spreading this um, this propaganda, or is it ju just more of a symptom of what they're saying? If 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 you follow, yeah. <clears throat> well, we've been wondering about those uh, similar topics, you know, numerous times. When you look at history, feminism, and other related topics, sometimes striking how smart mm. and devious the old plan is over centuries. <clears throat> so, um, are individuals responsible for master plan? I'm not sure about it. Are individuals, particularly psychopathic individuals, kind of uh, receptors or resonating with uh, dark energies? Mm. Um, that's more likely to me, but mm -hmm. it's difficult. It's really difficult to say, and uh, I really don't have a definite uh, answer for this question. Maybe if you leave a psychopathic person, in this case, psychopathic feminist intellectuals, to do what they do, the only result will be chaos. Mm -hmm. It may not be a mm -hmm. plan, but it certainly won't be good for anyone involved. Yeah, yeah, you're right, and uh, there's a. I think there's a lot of opportunistic uh, behaviors. This is quite typical of psychopaths and uh, opportunities, opportunistic behavior aimed at uh, chaos and destruction mm. and power. And uh, so I can, I could very well uh, understand that uh, once they are destroyed the family, and we know why they destroy the family to remove the father, the hated father from the uh, from the nucleus. Uh, step one, they realize that uh, oh, but uh, now there's. There is this guild, there are those boys who create this environment, and there is this new weakness in them, so mm. maybe you can work on that and uh, mm -hmm. further uh, our agenda a bit more. So the sure. opportunistic well, um, theory might be true, the, um, the master plan might be true. Well, I, I think that if, I mean, it seems like the radical feminism definitely seems to be coming from a place where it's just kind of a hatred of men. You know, it's like at the at the at the kind of at, at its base, it seems like there is just a complete hatred for men. So it's kind of like there's this kind of punishing aspect to it, right? So it's not only that, you know, men the father needs to suffer and be removed from the equation, but it's also that, you know, children if they see that there's a consequence for for male children as well, it's kind of like well, good, 
you know, because they see them all as future rapists, future, future child abusers, you know, that there, there actually is something like evil inherent in any male, including a child. I think that um, male hatred is a one factor, of course. But at the core of those revolutionary uh, doctrines, you realize that um, there is no beneficiary. Mm. Ultimately, everybody is a victim. You know, the, the revolution, it's her own children. Mm. There's a, in revolutionary process, you see a, a perpetual radicalization of idea. Mm. The revolutionary of yesterday is a moderate today, and tomorrow is going to be a counter-revolutionary that will go through the guillotine. Mm-hmm. And I think feminism is not different from that. Mm. Feminism, you see all those waves, first wave and second wave, yeah. are always more radical. You see feminists from the 70s, 80s that are appalled by feminism yeah. today. So it went way too far. Yeah. And But the feminists of today, they will be appalled by the feminism in five years and say mm-hmm. it went, went too far because at the core of those doctrines, there is a quest for power through victimhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Allege victimhood. So the ultimate, it's a competition for power. Mm-hmm. And the ultimate winner is the ultimate victim. Yeah. Alleged victim. So there can be only, there can be, there cannot be any winner. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's a never ending race where you sacrifice step by step. All well, fragments, all portions of the population, mm-hmm. and uh, and you totally. can start to see that, and that's fascinating. Like uh, uh, when there are victimization cases, but involving two minorities. Mm-hmm. For example, you had this uh, liberal college in New York, uh, where a student wanted uh, went for the the election mm-hmm. or president of the student association, you mm-hmm. know, and he won, but so it was a girl. That has transition, went through surgery, all that, and I become a male, okay? Mm-hmm. Transgender, a male, Caucasian male. Mm-hmm. And then the three other contestants for the election, president of student association with black wo- three black women, mm-hmm. and they managed to get the election cancelled because the one who won was a white male. <sighs> Jesus. <laughs> That's unbelievable. It's tyranny. Yeah. It's, it's destruction. And uh, uh, Jonathan, you're right that there is a male hate. But look at women. Feminists hate women. They mm. destroy the life of women. Look at yeah, what right. they did to women. Women, most of them, again, it's generalities, but in general, I think for centuries, they were very happy nurturing, having babies, a husband, mm. a good husband, a family, a safe house, a safe environment, and friends. And mm-hmm. look what they did to women. And kids, kids maybe are the, the main victim even more than, than male and female adults. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They took the yeah. kids that, and from kindergarten, the daycare, the, the mother, the, the kid doesn't, see, he has no more father. Yeah. And he doesn't see his mother. Yeah. And the mother sees the kid as a impediment, mm-hmm. as a last remnant of the patriarchal oppression. Yeah. And that's yeah. the reason why you see such high prevalence of uh, a child, child, uh, child maltreatment committed, perpetrated by, by mothers. Yeah. Because of the resentment. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Well, Pierre, you mentioned the, uh, the parallels with like the, um, the communist revolution 
and situations like that where we have, we see this uh, victimization going on. And then we were referencing psychopaths, and I think you can draw a parallel with that, right? Because in those power vacuums, psychopaths who seek, especially essential psychopaths who seek to climb the ladder of power and take advantage of situations like that will step into that vacuum. And so we have the same thing here. Um, you destroy the family, there will be a certain percentage of psychopaths who will step into that situation to take advantage of it. Um, or any group that is jockeying for power and the power kind of balance is in question. Um, we're going to see psychopathy, whether it's male or female. Uh, but I'm curious, and I, this has come up in the show, but it was a while, a couple of years ago, uh, for uh, Gabby and Erica and, and Tiff, I'm curious what you guys think about female psychopathy in this kind of a context. Do you feel like it's more of a threat or less or kind of equal or case by case? I guess I'm just curious what your thoughts are. I think it, it is more of a threat. Like I, I usually always joke, like the female of the species is the most dangerous one. And I don't think the human species is exempt from that. <laughs> I tend to agree too. Uh, women have this persona of being uh, delicate and sweet and truthful and nurturing. And when you come across a woman who is the opposite of that, it's such a shocker. Most people can't believe it. But uh, I've worked in psychiatric hospitals before, and I would much, much, much rather work with male patients than female patients because they're much easier to get along with. There's not hmm. this emotional manipulation and always, it just seems personal, like they're personally challenging you, the women patients hmm. are. Versus the men who are much more easygoing. <laughs> I mean, they might, you know, people might be afraid of them because maybe they have a history of hitting somebody on the ward or something like that. But they're much easier to get along with. If you tell them to do something, they'll do it. If you try to speak that way to a female patient, all you get is argument and manipulation. And it's never ending. <laughs> hmm. I think, too, for me personally... Uh, I was raised by a single mom in California who came out of the whole Berkeley movement, you know, mm. and this whole idea of feminism and a strong woman. And, you know, I remember my mom saying to me, not that you never need a man, but all a woman needs is good credit. That was kind of her motto. And, <laughs> you know, she was moved to the top of her corporation and was the only woman. And, you know, I was the first generation in the 70s of what they call latchkey kids. So, yes, my mm -hmm. mother was successful financially, but I was raised in a daycare center. And, you know, I kind of, I have two daughters of my own, so, and I was a single mom and I was on welfare. And, you know, I, I will say that I drank that Kool-Aid, the mm -hmm. feminist Kool-Aid, right? Like, oh, well, <laughs> who needs the man, right? And mm -hmm. through my experience, I, I kind of thought, well, if these women are looking out for each other, then they're going to create a cohesive community where we can take care of each other. You know, like, so if there's no fathers around and I have a lot of friends that are single mothers, then we'll take care of each other's children. We'll create this community. There'll be a healthy, you know, period to all this. And that didn't happen. And it really kind of shook me to the core of my belief system. Like, just like Tiffany was saying, like that manipulative aspect became stronger and then you had this dominant hierarchy of these women 
who would mm. who would control and manipulate. And then you found yourself going, well, aren't we all supposed to be looking out for each other and taking care of each other's kids? But yeah. that's not happening. And so it where's really, the sisterhood? Yes, where's yeah. the sisterhood? Where's that idea of like, you know, camaraderie? But instead, it became like a whole nother hierarchy of infighting and who was in mm. control. And and then I have been married to a white male for 18 years, and I will mm. never forget a conversation with all these women that I had when I was like, I want to stay at home and raise my kids. I want to be a homeschooled mom. I want to spend every minute I can with them because I didn't have that as a child. And Mm. I got so much backlash. I can't even tell you how people were like, you just want the white picket fence. You know, that's unrealistic. You're never going to get it. And I was like, oh, hell yes, I am going to get it. You know (laughs) what I mean? And so for me, that was very shocking. That was a shocking experience because I thought, as we've been talking, that, it, you know, it would be a good thing that women could have more choice and whatnot, but it doesn't bring happiness. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. That corrects me. Yeah. People say that when you say that you want something in your life and they're like, well, that's fancy. I want that too. You know, you're like, well, I, apparently you don't because, you know, if you did, you would work towards it. But it, it, demonizing somebody for saying that they want something that's perfectly reasonable yeah. Anyway, Sorry. you're right, Ricardo. Having more choices can be a positive thing. But uh, I'm wondering today if uh, women have more choice. There are so many the the balance the the scale mm-hmm. is so rigged. Mm-hmm. There are so many incentives, social pressure, financial incentives, legal uh, environment that push the woman. To follow the path that uh, your, your feminist surrounding environment was pushing for. Mm-hmm. So, to what extent today is a woman free to choose the to be a, a mother at home, take care of her kids, yeah. have a husband, a good family, a good household? Exactly. Well, it, it's looked yeah. at as you're not living up to your potential. Right. Yeah. You know. And but yeah, you're a loser. Yeah. Yeah. Right. A victim. Yeah. Erica, could you could you if it's not uh, and please feel free to say that this is too personal, but if it's not too personal, what, uh, what was the realization like when you described that, that kind of moment where the feminist Kool-Aid had left your system and <laughs> you, had, you had kind of crystallized this new um, desire that was seen by other people to be you know, misguided and, and overly traditional? What was that transition like for you? Did, was it, you know, did you have a really hard time coming to terms with it uh, or did it just kind of happen? No, not really, because in the other side of my family, I had my dad married a woman when I was like six months old and they had children and she stayed at home. And I mean, she is definitely the embodiment of a witch mother for sure. But to see the two very opposing viewpoints, you know, had a very strong mother who, you know, could support me. And then I had a a role model of a mother who stayed at home and you know, it made me realize that things aren't so black and white, that every situation is different. And I don't know. I mean, I still struggle with it. I still struggle with just understanding how making that choice could be seen as as bad, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. You know, Mm -hmm. that 
that it's it's so revolutionary now to want to stay home and be a mom and and be taken care of by a male and and I over the years have struggled with oh you know I should really be able to take care of myself but it's really hard when you have kids to work and take care of your kids and be equal that was that was it kind of is that equal thing like are we equal we're not equal you know what I mean mm. and that's the beauty of it that's yeah. the beauty of it because you talked about uh, Female community, where competition arised. Competition arised because of uh, mimetic violence, because you have individuals, female in this case, who have same similar goals, similar values, similar, and they aim at similar resources and similar position. So the competition for resources and position. Mm-hmm. And uh, the male female alchemy, it's almost an alchemy, this complementarity in skills and goals. Mm-hmm. You know, the protecting, providing man together with a nurturing, caring female, um, when properly applied, prevents most forms of competition. It's really, mm-hmm. it's fundamental cooperation beyond the intellect, beyond the culture. It's deeply ingrained in our genetics and life force, I would say. Mm-hmm. Well, I liked, Pierre, when you wrote in your article, and I apologize if I don't quote you properly, but it's especially um, attractive to women who have grown up in abuse situations to be angry and rageful towards men, hateful. So if you feed that, you know, then you're not going to see that there are men out there that are not like that. And I will say I have gone through that personally that you have to go through all of your preconceived notions about what a male is and work through it to not just be like, oh, I hate all men. Well, I can see how that would happen because if you did grow up in an abusive situation, negative emotions have a much stronger impact on you. And you just grow up seeing that all men are pigs or all men are dogs. And you just don't pay any attention to the decent men that are out there. Mm-hmm and you try to recreate that kind of childhood dynamic where you uh, live in that same situation with a dog or a pig for a husband <laughs> and try to resolve that childhood issue and it doesn't quite work out in the way that, yeah. you, that you would hope. Yes, and uh, actually which a, one of the most fundamental political divide today is uh, liberals or leftists versus conservatives vision of the world, because it's beyond politics. And on one side, you have conservative and sought today as some of the traits of the conservative, where we uh, we have a kind of God, or like in religions, you mm-hmm. know, with uh, absolute truth, where we don't have a holy Bible, but uh, we search for objective truth, you know, something that transcends the individual, mm-hmm. something that transcends subjective emotions, you know. And uh, this quest is uh, a very personal quest, you know? We aiming to know ourselves better, beyond prejudice, beyond fears, beyond beliefs. So the work is aimed at a higher, towards something higher, transcendental, reaching or getting closer to objective truth through personal work, work on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And when you study, when you deconstruct the leftist or the liberal ideology, you see it's almost the opposite. Mm. You have the prevalence of the, of the emotions, of the feelings, of the beliefs, mm-hmm. 
And it's not an inward process. It's an outward, outward process mm-hmm. where the leftist imposes on others before himself, actually, his own vision of what good is. And his vision of good is usually a very twisted one based on uh, emotions, projections, beliefs, and fears, yeah. ignorance. And that's the root of totalitarian uh, systems, you know, where you start to rule the life of others based on your projections and fears. Yeah, yeah. yeah it also seems to, uh, rather than emphasize the individual, really emphasizes group identification. I mean, especially with all the um, the uh, politics, the... Um, identity politics. Um, identity politics, thank you. It really seems to um, emphasize group identification over the individual. So it, Yes, yes, but that's ambivalent. I think it's a lie. Oh, you think? Yeah, I think so, because when you think... Um, when you think about it, uh, an illustration is the multiplication of the number of genders. You know, in Facebook, mm. it's now 60, 70, mm, yeah. this never-ending fragmentation. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, that's a hallmark of the revolutionary process. Mm. The facade, the official discourse is, of course, we are taking care of the oppressed minority, whether it's black, woman, the poor, mm-hmm. the farmers. But that's only a facade. That's only mm. the official discourse. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the driver is the, uh, the driving force is the ambition of a handful of psychopathic individuals. Mm. So that's why you see this fragmentation in number of subgenders, mm-hmm. and it fragment it will fragment ad eternum mm-hmm. until the end, until each individual is God. Mm. Mm. That's a great point. If you carry it all the way out, it does go that way. Mm. Uh, Pierre, I'm curious to discuss one of the other points in your article that we haven't really touched on yet, and that's the alleged wage gap, uh, which mm-hmm. I find to be a really interesting discussion because that's another one where if you kind of think like a you know lay person or you play the devil's advocate a little bit, you're like, yeah, of course, of course, men make more than women, but this you know not really intuition as much as is programming, like some of these other things we've come across. I'm curious if you could speak to what you found essentially for, you know, mainly for our listeners who haven't read the article yet or may not be familiar. <clears throat> well, the, the wage gap today officially in the U.S. is 77 cents per woman um, while men makes uh, $1. So there's a, yeah, or 79%, 79 to, to 1. So there's 20% difference. Hmm. Now, how do you calculate this figure? But you take the how much male make, how much female make. So you don't take into account the diplomas, the number of hours work, the position, the professionalism, the competencies, and you average all that and uh, you get this number. So it's really comparing apple and, uh, and oranges. Yeah. Um, if, you, uh, if you have a, a female who is a CEO, I'm reversing uh, the, the stereotypical role here. Uh, if you have a female who CEO works 80 hours a uh, a, uh, a week who, is, uh, who has a PhD from Harvard, of course, she makes more than the man who works as a janitor, half time, and has no diploma and no professional experience. Mm. You see? So there is a gender gap. I mean, there is a gender gap. There is a shrinking mm. gender gap that has reversed in some places 
in the UK today, between the age of 20 and 39 years old, women, hourly rate, eh, I'm talking now, mm-hmm. now we're focusing more, hourly rate by hour, women make more, marginally more than men. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, now, but let's focus on the, on the US figures, you know, this 21% difference. Mm-hmm. If you start counting hourly rate, the difference is 6 or 7%. Mm-hmm. There's almost nothing left. What does it mean? It means male work more than female on mm-hmm. average, more hours. Mm-hmm. Their rate is not higher, they make more. Uh, their rate is slightly higher, maybe 6 or 7%. And now why is it different? Because one of the fundamental reasons is that male choose careers uh, that generate more income. Mm. like engineering, like management, while female tend to look for careers, I mean careers or jobs, yeah, because they're less career-oriented, that's another factor, they're going to look for jobs more in um, social care, mm. um, relationship, communication, mm. human contact. Um, so there's, uh, even if there is a gender pay gap, and I'm not sure there's only one left today, I'm talking about hourly rate, is not due to the fact that uh, the employee is a male or female. It's due to the fact that male choose careers that generate more income. They make more hours. They're usually more conscientious. They're more competitive. They invest themselves more in the career. Mm-hmm. And again, we go back to the genetic wiring, to the instinct, to how we were designed in mm-hmm. terms of evolutionary perspective. The male is designed to provide and protect. Provide. He provides work. With work, he's a breadwinner. Mm-hmm. He provides food and shelter and safety and a roof and uh, uh, for the kids and the wife. And the wife is wired for nurturing and caring. And that's why she's less involved in the career. She has the kids. She wants to take care of the kids. That's in her instinct. And that's a very good thing. That's what brought us where we are today. That's where we are alive and there's still humans on the planet today. And that's why they choose careers that are related to this caring and nurturing instinct. Mm-hmm. So, again, yeah. the, page ga- uh, the wage gap is a... Uh, there's no wage gap. There's no gender-based wage gap. There's no wage gap due to the gender. Mm. Yeah. There's wage yeah. gap due to the fact that male and females do different choices. Yeah. Well, it's it's such. I mean, and you explain it very clearly, but it's such a polarizing topic. I mean, it makes me think of um, James Damore, uh, the the that ex Google employee who wrote the quote unquote manifesto, which was not a manifesto, but hmm. uh, um, that poor guy. I mean, I've I've listened to a few interviews with him, and ironically, he is the kind of man who I would think what I consider a true feminist would, would want. Uh, he's very intelligent, articulate. He's thought out everything he's trying to explain. He can show you his sources. He's nice, personable. I mean, really, it's like, where is this coming from? But if you search Google for James Damore, I mean, you know, put a mask on because the splatter is just like, it's so bad. Mm-hmm. You would think mm-hmm. that he was like the preeminent woman hater in the country right now. <laughs> uh, but, it, you know, that's what I'd say, that... All you have to do is throw that topic out there. It's like aviation gas on a fire because it's uh, so incendiary. Example being this guy who is just, you know, like I said, he's an extremely nice guy. And all he did was write an int- what was intended to be an internal memo. It was never intended to be released. And he explained what he thought were these biological differences that are 
you know, people are distorting. And what they never included when they sent that out to everyone in the media was that he had a section in there about how to get more women into tech. Mm. So let that sink in for a second. He wrote a whole section on this is an issue. Yes, there are some women that don't work in tech because of this, but there's also women who want to get into tech that can't, and here's how we can fix that. He wrote that out, Mm -hmm. but nobody touched on it at all. I guarantee anybody you would ask doesn't even know that's part of it. So it's just so frustrating that you can stereotype people just in a split second like that. It's trial by media. Yeah. Well, it's um, it's not a good news for Google. No, because <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, when you think about it, companies exist in a very competitive world, mm-hmm. and um, merit is essential. Competency is essential. So when you start, when politics is more important than fun, um, the fundamentals of economics, yeah, competitiveness. Uh, if I if I were a shareholder of uh, Google, I'd be very worried. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're yeah, not well, if you're not valuing competence, you're valuing group identification and politics. Then, by definition, your company is not going to be doing the best work it can. Yeah, no, actually, there's a in one of the Peterson. Uh, oh, during uh, the Peterson Newman uh, interview, uh, remember at one point um, uh, Newman talks about uh, companies uh, made of females. Yeah, you know. And say, person say, well, it's never been tried, and uh, so I don't yeah. know. It. But actually, it's been tried. Oh yeah, yeah, it's been tried, and uh, it's been a total disaster. Huh. So <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying here. Um, what I'm saying here is that overall, I don't think female are wired for the competitive, the specific uh, requirement that you find in a corporate world. This competition, this almost obsession for with career, this ability or this will to take a lot of risk, mm. the, um, to dedicate your whole life mm. to your professional life. Uh, I think most women are not wired for that. They don't yeah. want that. They don't like that. And I think it is a very good thing. Mm. And similarly, I think if you made a, the reverse experience with only male raising kids, mm. it's going to be... A, uh, a similar disaster. Yeah. Because maybe yeah. they're not they're not as good as women as raising kids. And now we say, oh, but that's sexist all that. But, but, but we know the the, the usual uh, take on that. But at the core, there's a value judgment where fundam- fundamentally it's lower to raise kids than it is to be a breadwinner. Yeah. It's uh, and that's it's to me to me is the opposite. It's the opposite. When, uh, yeah, you, I was think, say, when yeah. you think about it, what is the, the very foundation? Because, uh, you know, in thought we have this interest in psychology and, uh, mm-hmm. and we see how childhood is important. Mm-hmm. Everything happens between zero and, and say, eight years old. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where the mother should be. And that's where the nurture, the caring. That's what makes the, the future generation. And uh, the, what has been producing a generation of screwed up individuals. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So, breadwinning is important. But at least as important is a nurturing and caring for the kids. Yeah. And yeah, you need both. Again, it's, compl- it's complementary. Yeah. Yeah. So, totally. yeah, well, we can go into a utopic world where the men stay at home and raise kids. And I'm yeah. sure a lot of men would not be sad about that mm. because uh, it's tough. Sure, raising kids. But when you see what most males do, mm. I mean, there's some dreadful jobs. 
Yeah. I mean, the risk, the, the back breaking, the, 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 the casualties, the, mm-hmm. so. <coughs> shoveling shit. Shoveling shit yeah. 12 hours a day. Uh, yep. You know, you don't hear the feminists go on about that, do you? <laughs> sure. And the, the statistics here are appalling. And uh, there's almost no media coverage about it. I mean, I think it's 90% of job casualties. It's men. Mm-hmm. 85% of job injuries. It's men. Mm-hmm. Uh, battlefield, death yeah. on battlefield, it's a job. Yeah. G- uh, yeah. Soldier. And most people, they don't choose to be soldier because uh, why it's so fancy and Top Gun and uh, <laughs> it's because they have no other choice and they, they know they might die over there. Yeah. And they do die. And 98% I think of uh, war casualties are men. Mm. And uh, mm-hmm. so it's staying at home is not perfect. Mm. Being breadwinner is not perfect either. Yeah. You know? No, that I mean that that balance is is critical for sure. I know if I if I I don't have kids, but if I had kids and I was a single father, my kids would be rolling in the mud, catching rabbits with their teeth. You know, it, it would it would be a bad scene. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> well, the the equality thing I think that you, that we were talking about is is very interesting. Uh, uh, what I mean to say is the definition of equality. Equality of what? You know, like when you say we're not equal, okay, well, that's true. And also, it is true that the value of what we contribute to a relationship is equal, right? I mean, you know, please tell me if I'm being misguided on this, but I feel like the value of nurturing and the value of providing those two things are equal. So there is a sense of equality. The capabilities, the details are not equal. So I think another thing that, that confuses the whole discussion is the inability to distinguish what are we talking about when we talk about equality, because that's just you can throw that out and it like there's no further definition of that word. Mm. Yes, uh, yeah. The, the, uh, you know, equality. Now you see it applied to many, many fields, uh, and it leads to some stunning paradoxes, like in sports, for example. Some people, feminist-leaning people, start advocating for equality in sport, mm. knowing that the very foundation of uh, sports is the inequality. Mm. Inequality in uh, outcome, but inequality in gifts as well, mm-hmm. in skills, in potential. Mm-hmm. We're all born unequal, and we all have inequal uh, outcomes. Mm-hmm. And uh, But the rule is the same for, for everybody. Uh, now, if you want to apply equality to, f- for example, the 100-meter dash, mm. the only solution for everybody to run 100-meter dash at the same speed is by cutting the legs of his and bold. <laughs> you see what I mean? <laughs> you won't be able mm-hmm. to raise the performance of the, the mic to the level of the star, mm-hmm. exceptional uh, individual, exceptional uh, physiologically, mm-hmm. like you and bold. Yeah. So you won't raise up the one that are down. You will bring down the one that are up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's equality in mediocrity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's equality in inability. That's the only equality you can reach. Sure. Well, Oxford University was in the news recently uh, because they increased the time for the students. Now, they gave this increase in time to both the students, but they initiated this increase in time for the students to finish their exams because they wanted to improve the girls' test scores. Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> now, these were in uh, science and math departments. So they wanted to, yeah, they wanted to give an 
a boost to the female students. And that is not fair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the the old thing about uh, equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome, right? I mean, they're looking to, they don't like the outcome. Mm-hmm. You know, they're looking at the numbers at the end and like, oh, more uh, men are passing the exam than women are. So uh, let's uh, play with things here so that we get the outcome that we that we want. Um, it's that, a disaster. Isn't that yeah, inherently is. sexist, though, to even assume yeah. that women it can't is, compete yeah. with men? So let's give them a boost. Well, sure. Yeah. It will be a it will be a disaster because they have already studied this um, in other countries where Asians usually excel in science and technology. So they limited their numbers for university admissions to boost up the the country's you know <laughs> own talent. It proved to be disastrous just for the development of the country. I think this was I forgot. Oh, some, I think it was in India. No, not India. Or well, anyway. <laughs> it's mm. been studied, you know. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It's very ponerogenic when you think about it. You know, how Lobachevsky described a ponerite society mm. where more and more on top of the of the society, you don't get people because they're skilled, they have expertise, they have merit, but because of uh, other factors. Mm. And uh, yeah, from an evolutionary perspective. That's really shooting ourselves yeah. as a race, as a species, uh, shooting ourselves in in the foot. Yeah. So yeah, basically, really yeah, you go on. Sorry, Pierre. Go on, go on. Uh, I was going to say uh, just that that's a really good point. And when I was reading that book, I found it hard to um, sort of conceptualize how how society would get to a point whereby incompetent people were entrusted with highly responsible and important roles in society. Um, but then looking at the things sort of this past year, you know, coming across all of this information and radically sort of shifting my, <sighs> the way that I see things, uh, I, I can see now how 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 that is is happening. You know, like with the universities, how they take they're meeting quotas, and how, uh, for instance, the 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 females being given more time in the exams, and you can see how how that could lead to a situation whereby incompetence becomes the norm. You know, and it's um, yeah, it, it was insightful. Yeah, I mean, all it really takes is looking like your your evaluative system is no longer looking at merit. Where it's like, yeah. you're not looking for the most competent person, you're looking for, like, by some other um, qualifier. Yeah. Like victim that, victim status. Yeah. I feel like that value thing, too, like, that gets, that gets twisted a lot. Like, uh, again, I know I'm kind of beating this horse into the ground, but the whole nuance idea. And, like, so we talk about uh, gender roles and biological gender roles to nurture, to provide, protect, things like that. And when kids are growing up, like if there's a, if you have a, a daughter who wants to play in the mud and break sticks, you know, and, and chase down geese and stuff like that, what, you know, what's the problem with saying that's a statistical anomaly and it's yeah. totally fine. I, it's totally fine. I don't care. The objective fact is that it's a statistical anomaly, but there's no value judgment assigned to that. And for some reason, people can't think that way. Yeah. Yeah, the, absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> thanks God. And I think that that's, it's a plus. There's diversity. 
There's complementarity and intergender complementarity and intragender diversity. Mm. Diversity is life. Mm -hmm. Diversity is potential for evolution, Mm -hmm. for betterment. So that's a very good thing. But today we see the opposite. We see feminists who claim their stereotypes, but they lock individuals in two stereotypical uh, positions. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a complete cognitive dissonance, 100%. Yeah. Um, just to, like, look at, uh, you know, one thing that comes to mind is um, uh, MMA, mixed martial arts. There's, I think there's a couple now, but the one that comes to mind is uh, Fallon Fox, who's a transgender MMA fighter uh, who has transitioned to be a woman and is now fighting women with a biological man's body. Uh, and of course, a lot of fighters are up in arms about that, but they are even having a hard time speaking about it because of the current cultural climate, right? But they're saying, look, like this is physical combat. You can't ignore biology when you're talking about physical combat. And it makes it yeah. a very interesting discussion. Well, there was a weightlifter as well recently who won some kind of championship or something like that. And it was the same thing. It was a, a previously a man who transitioned to a woman and, uh, and won the competition. And people were like, well, that's not really fair, is it? And the, the, the guy's like, yeah, it's totally fair. I'm a woman yeah. and I won. The yeah. social construct. I <laughs> I'm a woman. A woman. Yeah. <laughs> See, and that's, again, where nuance gets destroyed because I, pre- I and I'm being completely honest about this. I have, if somebody wants to do a gender change operation, I may have questions about, you know, where, wh- why did they come to that decision and things like that. But there are contexts in which I, I have, abs- you know, why would I have a problem with that? It's their choice, it's their body, it's all that. But when you start to use it to lie to people, it's a problem, mm-hmm. I think, you know, and change the, the, the construct of clearly laid down uh, facts, you know, objective truths that we understand. Mm-hmm. Um that's that's yeah, no. when it becomes a problem. I mean, I don't care if you want to do it, uh, and I'm not I'm not being like, you know, there's that like group of people that are like, I don't care if you're gay, you know, just don't hit on me. It's not like that. It's really like I actually don't care. But it's when you project it on the rest of society. Mm. Yeah, there is this proselytism, and um, I also wonder to what extent people who choose to go through a sexual reassignment, sex reassignment surgery made it out of their own volition. There are certainly cases, mm-hmm. a few cases, but when you look at the current environment, and as we say, there are so many incentives, social pressure for women to dump the, their husband, there's also a lot of pressure, for particularly kids and teens, to change gender. Mm. Why? Yeah. Because it's fashionable. You know how influenceable they are. Yeah. Because yeah. how yeah. would you explain that? I mean, in the 60s and 70s, you have very few cases. Yeah. And all of a sudden, concomitant with this uh, pro-LGBT, uh, gender fluidity, identity politics propaganda, you have uh, endless cases of kids, young kids sometimes say, well, uh, I'm not a boy anymore, I want to be a girl. Yeah. Yeah. Did they, did they really choose so? Well, and they're damaging the people who've for whom that is, and I think in some cases this is, I would, I mean, very limited cases, but that it's a legitimate concern for that person. But I will say, and I'm, I'm bringing this up because I know a few people who have done that transition, but those people that I'm talking about didn't want to talk about it. 
they didn't want anybody to know necessarily. They knew that their colleagues would know and people that they knew would know, but they didn't want to make it a thing. They didn't want to be a, a, a poster child, you know, or a, a evangelist or anything like that. If a, if a woman wanted to transition into being a man or vice versa, they wanted to be known as that person who they wanted to become. So I find it incredibly disingenuous when all these people are coming out saying, I'm a spokesperson for the trans movement because the trans people I know don't want to be spokespeople. So yeah, I think that's actually, interesting. Yeah. yeah, here you're illustrating one of the most uh, destructive effects of uh, victimhood competition. Victimhood competition occurs through uh, various processes, including uh, the broadening of the legal definitions mm. of abuses, you know, child maltreatment, harassment, uh, sexual assault, mm. rape, to a point that everything becomes a rape, everything becomes sexual harassment. And the collateral victim of this uh, politizing of uh, sexual life are the real victims. Mm. Because when everybody is victim of rapes, alleged rape, nobody is a real victim of rape anymore. Mm. So you see the twist? The feminists yeah. claim to defend the victims, mm. the victimized woman, victim of rape. Mm. And through the things they do on the political stage, they dis they uh, they do harm, a lot of harm to the real victims yeah. by creating all those uh, manufactured victims. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's like, again, you can bring it back to the Me Too thing that like, you know, how, how many of them are actually like complaining about actual kind of assaults, like rapes and things like that? And how many have come out where it's kind of like hand on the knee, unwanted kiss, you know, that kind of thing? And it's like the, a, a lot of the kind of feminist celebrities are, are saying that you, you, can't, uh, you can't put a scale on those. They're all violations and they all should be viewed as, as equal. But um, I think that's very damaging. And they're not equal. No. And they're not equal. The same situation between a male and a female, a kiss, mm. or a world, or a look. If the woman perceives the male as potentially attractive, mm. So if, he, if he's rich, for example, mm. and he's not a critic of woman, mm. again, the man is the provider and the protector. Mm -hmm. So woman, unconsciously, very deeply, they have an attraction for the man who has this potential to provide and to protect. Mm -hmm. If he has money, he's able to provide. Then there will be food for the kid. Evolutionary is a very strong argument. Mm -hmm. Sure. So the same move, the same word, if it's pronounced by a rich male, it will be received positively. Mm -hmm. If it comes from a non-attractive male, a poor male, mm. it will be perceived negatively. Yeah. In one case, sure. it's seduction games, the beginning of the romance. In the other case, it's sexual harassment. Yeah. Same yeah. act. Yeah. And here, you have the real definition of discrimination. Yeah. The law yeah. is not the same for every individual, which is the very foundation of democracies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. The rule of law, the same law for everybody, equality of opportunity, and then uh, let the outcome uh, happens. Yeah. You know? Well, should, now when you raise Usain Bolt, Usain Bolt race has a five seconds penalty. Girls, when they go for an exam, they have one yeah. hour extra. Yeah. You see? The yeah. rules, <laughs> the law is not the same depending 
on which minority, which group the individual belongs to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, I, you know, I uh, know people who have uh, daughters and know women, you know, who, who are daughters who were raised a certain way. Obviously, they're daughters, <laughs> but you know what I mean, uh, that, that are 100% owning life, doing really well. You know what I mean? Uh, either successful or determined, uh, persistent, all that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> and it occurs to me that uh, the perception of, oh, man. Oh, I lost my train of thought. Shoot. I had a really good point there, but it was kind of hard to get to. <laughs> we trust you. <laughs> just pretend maybe you it'll said come it. Back. Yeah, I'll just pretend I said it. There we go. <laughs> maybe, it'll, maybe it'll come back to me. I'm sorry. Uh, what, what got me thinking there, I guess, for what it's worth, was thinking about the James Demore story and, and how one of the most vocal critics of, of him in the public sphere was, uh, and I'd have to look her name up, but the CEO of YouTube and saying how his comments were vile and disgusting, you know, and it was like, you're the CEO of YouTube. You won, <laughs> you know, as far as women in tech goes, you, you got it. You just negated everything that you think he wrote just by speaking out loud in your position of power that you've earned through hard work and blah, blah, blah. So that, that was what got me thinking to this point that I've now lost, but yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's all upside down. It's cognitive dissonance all over the place. Everything contradicts itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe that was why I lost my train of thought was the cognitive dissonance. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess uh, we are kind of coming up on our time. Do we, you guys have any uh, concluding thoughts? What will nope. <laughs> okay. What will a feminist utopia look like? Oh God! Uh, you now? just have to you just have to look around. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's there. Yeah. It's now. Yeah. This is it. Yeah, ah. the families are already broken up. The relations between men and women are already broken up, so much so that certain segments of the male population would rather have sex with a robot <laughs> than a real yeah. woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's an interesting. Suicide. <clears throat> They're not going to college as much as. Uh, girls are. Mm -hmm. It's already a mess. Uh, yes, the yeah, that's a, that's a re reality. The feminists created the reality, and we just have to look uh, out to see the this great reality of equality. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, isn't it great? Now maybe a take-home message. A take-home message I would say is. Um, When people open their eyes, if some people open their eyes about the, the feminist lies, it's very tempting to get uh, an opposite stance, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, start demonizing uh, women. Mm -hmm. Before I was a believer of the feminist uh, propaganda, I hated men, and now I'm a believer, a man, now I don't believe anymore, and then I hate women. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I would say that... Um, Maybe that's the core of the uh, rejecting the core of the leftist ideology is a key. Mm. Is to realize that um, we don't change others, and uh, even if we could, we should not. Mm. <clears throat> because in uh, when you think about morality, what is good and what is bad, there's a lot of cultural 
a lot of relative factors that intervene. And uh, maybe one of the only universally true things is the respect of free will. Mm. If it doesn't yeah. destroy, damage you, huh? mm. mm. self-defense is not incompatible with free will. Mm-hmm. Respect of free will, so we cannot change other. Even if we could, we should not. And instead of losing all this energy in proselytism, propaganda, trying to change the world, we should focus on the only thing we might be able to change a little bit. It's ourselves. Very well said. Yeah, very well said. Yep, I agree. I mean, if you guys are down, I think we should wrap on that. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, Pierre, you were going to say one more thing. No, no, that's all. And, uh, well, <laughs> Gabby, we, we have a, a doctor here and, uh, and a nurse, so you know better than me the, the phrase prima non sere in, uh, in Latin, yeah. first do no harm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. First yeah. do no harm. And uh, often people, when everybody thinks it's doing good, the leftists, the feminists, most of them, they think they're doing good. Mm-hmm. They're doing good to the world. They're changing. They think they're changing the world for the better. Mm-hmm. And uh, before reaching the point where you try to to change the world, you have to be sure that you do no harm. Yeah. And for that, mm-hmm. you need uh, a lot of knowledge of yourself and of the world. Mm-hmm. So it's better to do nothing yeah. than to do harm. Yeah. True. Amen. Yep. So be it. All right. Well, thank you, Pierre, for joining us. I feel like we had a really good show today. That was a great discussion. Uh, yeah. Yeah, really appreciate it. Um, and uh, for those of you who are listening who haven't uh, seen the article uh, that we were discussing today, go to gasat.net. And if you don't see it right there, just search for five feminist lies we take for granted, and you will find it. Um, I'll post it in the chat. Great. So uh, thank you again for listening and tuning in. And uh, be thank sure you. to... Uh, to tune in on Sunday for the SOT Radio Show at noon Eastern time. Uh, Thanks again, Pierre, and uh, we'll be back next week. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.